Navigate to John chapter 20, verse 19. Follow along in your Bible or on your device. The topic in those verses, Jesus encourages his disciples to receive the peace that he promised them. The title of the message, all we are saying is give peace a choice. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, think about that verse in the Revelation where it talks about having ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. That's us this morning, Lord. We are the church. We have, we're meeting here in this building as your building, living stones, Lord, being fit together, a holy habitation unto you. And so we want to have spiritual ears to hear what you want to say to us. Uh, we'll know that it's you talking, Lord, because it will be full of grace and truth, mercy, uh, hope, love, those kinds of things. Uh, though you may have to rebuke us from time to time like a good parent, Lord, uh, it's always out of love uh, and nothing accusatory, uh, always to bring us to a better place, not a lower place. And so elevate us in our knowledge of you today through your word. May everything, Lord, be uh, true and distinct from your word. We thank you in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said amen. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. As far as famous first words go, Neil Armstrong's moon landing tops all the lists. I prefer something Jim Irwin said, another astronaut. He said, Jesus walking on the earth was more important than man walking on the moon. More than 2,000 years ago, the voice from heaven was heard when the Christ child cried and cooed in a Bethlehem manger. The first words the angel of the Lord proclaimed to the shepherds watching over their flocks at night were, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Our text in the Gospel of John features the famous first words Jesus spoke to his disciples after he rose from the dead, Peace be with you. Afraid, in hiding, behind locked doors, having each in their own way failed the Lord, you might expect Jesus to issue them a stern rebuke, but that only reveals how much we need to grow in our understanding of his grace. J.C. Ryle puts this in perspective. He said, peace, not blame, peace, not fault-finding, peace, not rebuke, was the first word which this little company heard from their master's lips after he left the tomb. Maybe today you need to hear Jesus say to you, peace be with you. He will because he is here, spiritually speaking, and those words belong to his church. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, believer, God's peace is with you. And number two, unbeliever, God's peace can be with you. Let's take a look at believers primarily in verses 19 through 29. Peace in the Middle East, a peace offering, blessed are the peacemakers, Speak now or forever hold your peace. Peace in our time, the peacemaker Colt single action revolver. Peace can mean a lot of things, can it? And so what does it mean here? What did Jesus mean by it? Well, this wasn't the first time Jesus talked to his guys about peace. Back in chapter 14, verse 27, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
And then a couple chapters later, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus emphasized two things about peace. He said the world is filled with tribulation that causes your heart to become troubled. And then he gives you supernatural peace to overcome fear and to replace it with cheer and joy. Peace, then, is God's empowering to rest in and be content with our circumstances, even if they're troublesome. It is a promised permanent possession of the believer. We are, in the truest sense, able to rest in peace. I like that. Are you resting in peace in this turbulent world? Well, first you need peace with God. Men are born the enemies of God. Jesus came to reconcile mankind to God by taking our place on the cross. God makes peace with us through the cross. We cannot make peace with God. We're the enemy. We're at enmity with God. We are sinners. We have a sin nature. Commit individual sins. Sin has been imputed to us. God must make peace with us, and he does it on the cross. C.S. Lewis wrote, God cannot give us peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Now, you're free to reject the idea that you need peace with God and live your life feeling as if everything is going well. In the end, you're going to face what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. Apart from believing in Jesus, you will understand that there is no reconciling with God. You're going to stand there in your trespasses and sins, God's enemy, and be cast alive into the lake of fire for an eternity of conscious, mental, and physical torment when all you needed to do is believe Jesus Christ. Peace doesn't come to us through meditation or breathing techniques. It isn't earned. It can't be merited. It is already yours. Like so much else in the Christian life, your part is to believe. If I asked you, what must you do to be saved, you would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe plus nothing, no works. You simply believe and you are born again, uh, you know, given eternal life, your sins are forgiven, all this fantastic stuff happens to you. Then years later, if I was to say, how do you get the peace of God? A lot of times people, instead of just saying, well, I need to believe that it's mine, it's part of my salvation, they say, well, there's this seminar I've been trying to attend. There are these 10 steps that somebody recommended. There are, I need to get rid of this in my life and do this over here. I need to go on a sabbatical and seek peace or whatever it is. Same way, you realize that you already have the peace of God as a Christian and you receive it. Uh, now, sounds easy, sounds simple. It both is and isn't simple. Yes, we can always have peace. It is our inheritance. But no, you're not always at peace because you constantly face new obstacles and agitations. And we need to grow in it because we live in bodies of flesh, in unredeemed physical bodies that are not yet fit for eternity. And so the spirit and the flesh uh, strive against each other. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, don't feel totally rebuked because you maybe are agitated right now about something, don't have the peace of God. But do believe that it can be yours. And it's not a matter of praying more necessarily or, or fasting in prayer and all that. If God leads you in that way, great. But Jesus said, guys, I gave you peace. It's yours. Now figure out how to apply it. Verse 19, then the same day at evening, 
being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. By the way, as an aside, uh, there's a, a wonderful movie that d doesn't get much mention. It's called Risen. It uh, features uh, Joseph Fiennes, I think, one of the Fiennes brothers. And uh, it's a great Christian movie. And there's a scene in it I love where the Romans are there with the disciples in this room and Jesus suddenly is just there. And it, it shows it really well. It's great. And so it's one of those movies that's about the resurrection, uh, you know, and, and it does a really good job for, uh, and I know we've got it in the bookstore, so uh, pick that up when you can, Risen. But uh, anyway, when the Apostle John references the Jews, he means the Jewish authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, not the general population. They were understandably afraid. The Jews had manipulated the Roman ruler to put Jesus to death. The combined earthly might of religion and government united to crush Jesus and his followers. At any moment, there could be a knock at the door demanding entrance, leading to arrest, and who knows what else. Satan is the ruler of a sinister system in opposition to God. He's called the ruler of this world. And that sinister system is the world, is what the Bible calls the world. What is Satan's rule like? Well, if you think about it for a minute, it shouldn't surprise you that a big part of his platform, not that he had to run for it for office, but he has a platform, and a major plank in his platform is murder. For example, California has gone from being the golden state to being the abortion state. Governor Gavin Newsom recently launched a disgusting billboard campaign in other states using a Bible verse to support abortion in pro-life states. It reads, need an abortion? California is ready to help. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than this. Oh, don't stand too close to him. Canada is going to allow assisted suicide for healthy people with mental illness beginning in 20. 23. Canada is obsessed with human uh, sacrifice, one author writes, like all pagans before it, and they really want to off people. Uh, they uh, euthanized about 10,000 people, I think, last year. Now, this new law would include depression and personality disorders. Uh, and so, have you, ever been to, have you been to the doctor recently? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you have, they might have given you a depression screening. They're doing that all the time now. And so, you know, I'm in the doctor's office, maybe say, you know, do you have any, uh, you know, how, how's your back pain? You know, anything in your family here? Uh, what about this? What about that? Uh, you ever feel a little bit depressed? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm not telling you to lie, but the answer to that question is no, especially if you're in Canada. <laughs> because otherwise, you go on the euthanasia list, you know. He says, yeah, Mr. Pensiero, yeah, we're here to euthanize you. Why? You told your doctor you were depressed and this is the law. No, I'm feeling great. You seem depressed to me. It's not funny. Abortion was the leading cause of death worldwide for the third year in a row, according to Worldometer, a database that provides real-time data about just about everything. Why is there no sanctity of human life? Because the devil was a murderer from the beginning and this is his administration. You want to be murdered? 
You want to maim people. You want to make life miserable for people. You follow the devil. That's what he's done to our world. And so, um, of course, this world ruling system promotes murder on a malevolent scale. We must battle it on every front, local and national, legal and political. But the ultimate warfare is supernatural. It is for the hearts of men. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Saved people realize the sanctity of human life, and they repudiate murder. It's as simple as that. Uh, again, do everything we can on every front, but you don't, you don't give a person sanctity of human life until they have eternal life, and then they know what God has for them and for everyone. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our enemy. It's a supernatural enemy promoting murder and everything else that goes with it. Now, the disciples are huddled together, cowering in secret and in fear, doors fixed shut. It's possible for a church to become like that, closed off to outsiders, content to be safe and get together with people that they feel comfortable with. A.B. Simpson said this, the Christian that is bound by his own horizon, the church that lives simply for itself, is bound to die a spiritual death and sink into stagnancy and corruption. We never can thank God enough for giving us not only a whole gospel to believe, but a whole world to give it to. Now, I think our church is great. This is, this is in my mind, the greatest church ever in history. But, uh, you know, maybe second to, no, but anyway. Uh, so I love our church, and this isn't a rebuke, but we all have to think about what would we have, what, what, how would we receive so-and-so if they came to church? You know, I'm, I mean, are we going to turn people away because they're offensive to us? Uh, you know, I, I get a lot of questions. I, I'm not going to, you know, well, I can't use that. That would be rude. Anyway, I'm thinking to myself. But you know, all these scenarios in our world today, what if these kind of people, what if, people dressed like this or acting like this or whatever, what would happen? Well, hopefully they would hear the gospel and be, you know, welcomed as people who need to get saved. And so, but it's something to think about. You know, we don't, we're, we don't come together to be safe. We come together to be equipped, to be built up and then equipped to go out into a very unsafe world where uh, we're lucky in the United States that providentially we're not being murdered for our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, there's... Uh, Saints that we know of in Asia and different places where, you know, they, they understand that they're going to be killed if they go out to certain places, but for the grace of God. And so uh, it, it's, a, it's a serious thing. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. The Lord rose from the dead in a physical body, but one that is greatly enhanced. He could either walk through doors and walls or he transported from place to place. Believers are likewise going to be raised in enhanced bodies, able to do whatever Jesus was able to do. And so just meditate on that for a while, especially when you're at the gym pumping stuff. You know, just not going to have to do that. Uh, I'll be happy. But anyway, disciples were ignoring both Jesus' promise of peace and the power of his resurrection. When I am not at peace in my circumstances, I am ignoring the biblical fact that peace is already mine through his power. And so that's where I have to start. Uh, and, and again, it may not come immediately, but in this text, it kind of did. Verse 20, when he had said this, 
He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It was an immediate transformation. I can imagine the Lord saying, guys, guys, check it out. Some people think the nails went through the wrist, others uh, through the palm, but either way, he's showing them his marks. And then he said, now, let me show you something really cool. And uh, he's bearing the marks of the, sword, uh, the, the spear that uh, opened up his side. The Apostle Paul told the churches of Galatia, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. He was primarily talking about the many scars from his abundant persecutions and tribulations. It always makes me think of that scene in Jaws where they are down in the boat showing each other their various scars, having a contest to see who had the worst scars. And at one point they shift over to Chief Brody and he's looking at an appendicitis scar that's about this long. These other guys have been bit by sharks and rays and all this kind of stuff. That would be me in a Christian uh, comparison. You know, I'm looking for a scar to show somebody because so many before us have suffered so much greater. Now you and I may not have visible trauma but you do bear invisible spiritual marks. You are called a bondservant if you're a Christian. In the Old Testament, a bondservant, as I understand it, was a, a servant who decided to stay. They had paid off their debt to the master, and they could leave, but they decided to stay because they'd be better off in the master's house than out on their own. And as a symbol of that decision, they would take them to the doorpost of the house, put their earlobe on it, and run it through with an awl, hammer it through like you're piercing an ear. And that would show that, uh, you know, everybody that you had voluntarily chosen to remain in that household. And so if you're a Christian, you have that supernatural mark as it is. We don't see it, uh, but uh, in heaven it is made known. They were glad. Some translations have overjoyed. What strikes me, as I said a moment ago, their immediate transformation. I mean, you picture them huddling, scared, afraid, listening to every little noise. Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. I was crucified, now I'm alive. And it was like, oh, right, our, our joy is overflowing. We, it's like a complete turnaround. No counseling, no sabbaticals, uh, you know, no chat rooms. Uh, they just, they believed the Lord. With that one word, peace, Jesus expected them to make a complete turnaround. And when he had said this, verse 22, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this wasn't a pre-filling with ministry power. The disciples would not receive the power of the Holy Spirit and his boldness until the day of Pentecost. Besides, there's little, if any, change in them after the Lord breathed on them until we get to Pentecost in the book of Acts. For example, in the next chapter, we find them fishing for tilapia and catfish and sardines not men. Remember, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. They went back to fishing for those fish. And by the way, those are the fish I'm told. Uh, I researched this because I was curious. Those are the main fish that they were fishing for in the Sea of Galilee. Tilapia, catfish, and sardines. So definitely I would not have been a pescatarian uh, in those days. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe I just don't know how to cook catfish. Or maybe I see too many people noodling and it blows my mind. Almost got eaten by a catfish one time in Lake Mead. You know, how, man, those things get huge. We were scuba diving, and this fish, I thought it was going to take my face off, but anyway. F.F. <laughs> Bruce points out something helpful. The verb used here, emphasio, 
is that used in the Septuagint version of Genesis 2-7, where after fashioning the first man from dust, God breathed into him the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. The disciples would have understood this unique word from the book of Genesis. They were a lot more scripturally uh, sound than we sometimes think. They were ignorant men, fishermen, but they knew the word. Most of it had been memorized by them at, at a young age, and they, uh, I've told you before that there weren't chapter and verse designations. They couldn't say, go to Psalm 22. They would say instead, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they would know that that, were, that was the psalm that they should be thinking about. And so they'd recognize this unique word. God's breath in Eden included the spiritual life which Adam later forfeited. Breathing on the disciples was symbolic of there being a new creation with a new spiritual life in Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote, as it were, so it is written, the first Adam, or excuse me, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. A.W. Pink said, there man's original creation was completed by this act of God. Who then can fail to see that here in John 20, on the day of the Savior's resurrection, the new creation had begun, begun by the head of the new creation. And so we see this as a symbolic thing. It didn't, Jesus didn't go around breathing on everyone. Uh, you know, there were these guys huddled in the room. There was Thomas. There were other followers of Christ and disciples. He didn't have to breathe on everybody. He did this this one time as a sign that this was the beginning of the new creation in Christ. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. When a person presents the gospel, when you present the gospel to someone, you are essentially telling them that if they receive and when they receive Jesus Christ, all their sins are forgiven. Now, you don't go and find a criminal out in the world and say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Sure. I just saw your wanted poster in the post office. Uh, you're on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. I'm here to tell you that all your crimes have uh, been taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. Well, that's not going to happen. You don't have the authority to do that. You don't have the power to do that. On a much greater scale, you look at a person and say, your sin has been forgiven at the cross, and your sin nature is crucified at the cross, and you can live forever. That's what these verses are talking about. They're not talking about a personal, individual confession of sin to a priest who then absolves you. Jesus absolves you at the cross, and you don't need any mediation. At the same time, a person who rejects the gospel, their sins are not forgiven them. They go forward in their sins, and should they die in their sins, the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. And as we talked about earlier, it's the great white throne judgment that needs to be avoided at all costs. We see this exercise on the day of Pentecost when Peter presented the gospel. As the hearers believed and repented, their sins were forgiven, and they received eternal life. Verse 24, now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Apparently Thomas was a twin, and as a result, the disciples uncreatively nicknamed him twin. We pointed out before that these guys were in many ways like any other group of guys. I think what they said to Thomas was to needle him just a little, especially since his personality was given to a certain cynicism. 
And so they took advantage of that. You guys know what I'm talking about. You ladies probably don't, but you guys, you know, there's, you're always needling each other, trying to you know, set one another off. My dad, God bless him, um, he could be needled like this by my older brothers. My, my two older brothers are about, well, my next oldest brother is about 10 years older than me, so I was always you know, getting bombarded by them. And so the big thing in our household at the time was haircuts, because, you know, there was Beatles and Rolling Stones and long hair. And so, you know, you don't want to be the one kid at school with the regular boy's haircut, you know, where you got practically nothing left. But anyway, I'd have to go to the barber and get these regular boy's haircuts. And then I'd, we'd be at dinner, and my brothers, they would, they would start in. They'd say, did you get a haircut? Yeah. It doesn't look like you got a haircut. No, I got one. That's not a haircut. You're just combing your hair different. No, it's a hair. And they would go on and on and on. My dad would just sit there eating. And then finally he would explode. Because, you know, usually they'd say something like, they'd ask him, they said, did you give him money? for?" Because we think he's saving it, you know. And, stuff. and then he would just go off. I mean, just, you didn't get a haircut. You're going to go back down to that place. You're going to get another haircut for free. I'm going to go down there and blow that place up. I mean, it was, it was like all of that kind of stuff, you know. Now, I don't think Thomas was that bad, but uh, he seems to have that personality. The other disciples, verse 25, therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. They must have described Jesus showing them his wounds Thomas's skepticism, his famous doubt, was genuine. Jesus will call it unbelief in a moment. But his insistence on touching the wounds perhaps is a way of saying, guys, if I had been there, I know you give me a hard time because I wasn't there to see this, but if I were there, I would have touched him. He said, touch me, I would have done it. You guys are a bunch of sissies. So you've got this banter going on, which I'm making all up, right? This is all speculation, but, and I'll tell you why I'm doing it. I'll tell you why I'm doing it. Well, it's fun for one thing, but you know why? Because there's a lot of speculation I read when I see Thomas in commentaries. Almost everyone picks on Thomas and says, Thomas was the guy who missed church. He could have been there the week earlier with the other guys, could have seen Jesus risen from the dead, had his doubts all assuaged and all, but instead he missed church. Don't miss church. You should come to church. You never know what's going to happen at church. And, and then the people who are at church all get exhorted to come to church. That's always driven me crazy. I guess it's the preaching to the choir thing, you know. If you don't come to church, I'm here, I'm here, please leave me alone, you know. Uh, but, and that's all speculation too. Nowhere are we told anything about why Thomas wasn't at that first meeting. For all we know, he could have been helping his sick mom. Or, or, you know, there's a million different reasons. And so be careful with the speculation. And especially if you're going to use something like that to exhort people and make them feel bad. Uh, you know, it, it's, not really, um, it's not really edifying. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be to you. This was a common greeting for sure. But think of all the other ways Jesus could have greeted them, all the other first words. He could have said grace to you or grace and peace to you or guys have hope or anything. The Lord knew them best and he knew that they needed above all to have his peace. Jesus knows whether you need peace or hope or joy or something else. 
He knows whether you need healing or the sufficient grace to endure your suffering. Nobody knows you like he knows you. And he will give you the things that he has promised you if you will receive them. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hands. Reach your hand here, put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Our Lord is condescending in the most superlative sense of that word. He condescended to come to earth to be born a man so that his body could be substituted for you and marked by crucifixion. By those marks, that death, Jesus draws all men to himself as the savior of the world, especially those who believe. And so he, you know, he says, Thomas, go ahead. I and mean, if that's what it's going to take for you, touch me. But it's no worse than the condescending he does to come to the cross in the first place to you and I and say, hey, you realize I had to die for you. I died on the cross. I took your place. And I did it voluntarily because there was no way you could have peace with God until God made peace with you. And that was that sacrifice, that living blood sacrifice, that was the only way. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, another stunning immediate change. I mean, it's just, just like that. Thomas went from doubting Thomas to this guy giving a doxology. I'd like to think they changed his nickname at that moment. The once doubting doxologist. What do you think, too much? Well, you know, nicknames. I mean, the military, right? Uh, the, you pilots, you all have your nickname on your, on your jet. Maverick, you know. <laughs> I mean, how'd you like to look over and say twin? Well, that's going to really, really, you know, strike fear into the enemy. Who's coming? Twin. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe the doubting doxologist isn't going to, you know, do much either, but at least it's creative. Jesus is Lord has come to mean that he was God and is God, but here it says Jesus is Lord and God, and so I think what John's getting after is that he is our master to be served on earth, and as God, he gives us the empowering to do it. We're, we're big about telling ourselves and you, whatever the Lord says you can do, you can do. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We don't have a visual bodily manifestation of Jesus. We have the written word which presents Jesus to us as the person in whom we have everything we need to live a godly life. Unbeliever, God's peace can be with you. I came across a quote attributed to Thomas Noble. He said, we have our faith in a father whose mercy is over all his works a God for whom it is unthinkable to create creatures in order to damn them. I say that because we're wanting to say this morning that if you're not a believer, you can be saved. Jesus died for you, and his Holy Spirit wants to uh, convict and convince you of that and bring you into the kingdom of God. God has made peace by the cross, offers all who will believe eternal life. So verse 30 and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Directors' extended cuts of feature films have become popular. I suffered through the Snyder Cut of Justice League four hours long. I had to take it in you know, segments. And much to my disliking, after all that, they cut out my favorite scene. Oh, well. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to ask. 
it's that scene where <laughs> it's that scene where Aquaman is he doesn't know it, but he's sitting on the uh, lasso of truth uh, Wonder Woman's and he's talking about how much he likes her and loves her and stuff and then it's just the cutest thing in the world the only moment of humor in the entire Snyder universe and they cut it out so anyway a lot of good Bible stuff ended up on the editing floor because John says uh, you know uh, there were a lot of other things he could have recorded. He recorded seven miracles called by him signs, changing water into wine, healing the royal official son, healing the paralytic, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. The book of the Revelation, interestingly enough, is uh, also penned by John. In it, you find many groups of seven, such as seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. My favorite seven, seven times Jesus says to us, he is coming quickly. It seems that sevens were John's writing style. It's how he edited. I think if I'm not mistaken, there was a poet, E.E. E. Cummings, who never used capital letters, is that correct? Yes, all right, see, woo, college, right there. You see Riverside flowing through me. It's how he edited. It ought to encourage us to edit a little bit, be concise. And I'm not saying we should dumb down the gospel to 280 characters so it can fit on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, people can go on and on and on, either saying the same thing over and over again or saying nothing of any value. And so uh, be, a, you know, be a better evangelist in terms of how you present things. to folks. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, try and say as much as you can in as little time as possible, and you'll say way more than if you had 60 minutes or 90 minutes to fill. Uh, I know today in our society, almost every seminar that, you know, whether that I've had to go to in the secular realm for like law enforcement or stuff like that, they all have to last four hours, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's like cramming two hours worth of material into four hours. Uh, because it can all be done. So last thing I did for Lamore Police, uh, it, it was over in 90 minutes. They say, you've got to go for another two hours. I, I, no, I, there's, this is it. You know, I mean, I, I'd just be saying the same thing over and over again. Well, that's, that's, you know, we need four hours. But anyway, I left. Uh, <laughs> now we worked it out. But uh, anyway, you understand what I mean? So we're not saying, you know, I had a pastor used to say, we don't preach sermonettes for Christianettes. And when I talk to my pastor friends, they say, no, our people love the word. They'll sit there for hours. Oh, yeah, it's because you make them. Uh, you know, I'm like, you're dull. I listen to you, you're dull. Uh, so <laughs> it's okay to be dull. Just be dull for a shorter period of time. You know, so. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The man Jesus is the unique son of God who is equal with God, the promised Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. Do you believe that? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be, you are saved. The gospel has the power to awaken new faith. It also has the power to revive faith already awakened. Both unbelievers and believers need to believe. Unbeliever, you need to believe that Jesus is Lord and God, who he said he was, that he died and rose from the dead and is in heaven, getting ready to come back. 
Believer, you need to just believe that everything Jesus said he would do for you, he's doing for you. And that it's not, it, you know, you got saved without works, not meriting it, and the Christian life goes on that same way, believing the Lord. And as I said earlier, not to put a burden on people, we don't always believe perfectly. In fact, we very rarely do. But it doesn't change the fact that we uh, are needing to believe. We just need to take Jesus as faith value, face value rather. Or maybe faith value. Maybe that was a great slip. Wow. If it's not a Freudian slip, who could it be in Christianity? I don't know. Major Ian Thomas said this, eternal life is not a peculiar feeling inside. It is not your ultimate destination to which you will go when you're dead. If you are born again, eternal life is that quality of life that you possess right now. Eternal life includes the peace of God that we possess right now in Satan's turbulent, tumultuous, murderous world. Peace be with you. Rest in peace. Maranatha. Let's pray.